Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. Not any Kate Nishimura. A very special Kate Nishimura, <laughs> which is what we're going to talk about here in a second. Oh, okay. But for any of you listeners out there that are true fans and follow us wherever we go, you will know that we were on uh, the Global Bandroom Podcast, not once, but twice. Mm-hmm. We're a bit of a fan favorite over there. and uh, <laughs> But we did um, the main episode, which was great. But we were also invited back for a repertoire happy hour. We got to talk all things Canadian band music. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that time, Kate decided that she would share some hot news. And that is that she was commissioned by the Midwest Clinic to write a piece for their 75th anniversary. So I, we need to announce it officially here because um, I was pretty upset, but that's okay. Um, so congratulations, dear friend, on this great honor. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry that I said something about it elsewhere, but... <sighs> To keep yeah, this fine. BRP exclusive, I didn't actually talk about the piece itself or about the premiere oh, okay, or yeah, yeah, yeah. about this anything. I just simply mentioned <laughs> that I was writing a piece, which is uh, which is a big deal it's to what me. You do. So yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you for yeah. the the congratulatory words. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. And I'm very excited that I'm going to be there and I'll be able to hear it. I'll be there for the. The great premiere. It's going to be fun. So, what can you t- what can you tell us about it? Yeah. So, um, the piece is called Wilderness, and it is written uh, in celebration of the seventy fifth anniversary of the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic, um, but also in celebration of the Earth's remaining wild spaces and the people mm-hmm. who work to protect them. Um, Listeners will know by now, if you didn't already know about me before, that, you know, nature and the environment and everything is the most important thing to me in the whole world. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I couldn't think of a better topic to celebrate um, for Mm -hmm. this particular project. And it's a really big deal to me to have my voice and my work um, showcased on a stage you know of this magnitude not just because the stage is big and the room is big but like because of what it (laughs) represents (laughs) um and i i posted about this on social media um recently and i realized Mm -hmm. in doing so that it's kind of a big deal uh to point out some of the statistics here so i will do that um so to my knowledge, and I, I did some digging, um, so from what I could find, I am the first Canadian composer to be commissioned by the Midwest Woo. Clinic, uh, which is a big deal in itself. Um, but I'm also the youngest ever composer to be commissioned by them and Woo. the first woman of color. Yeah. <laughs> there, you, that's all the woos. Um, <laughs> and... I mean, I I don't like pointing these things out um, because tokenism is bad and Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to highlight, you know, myself as a novelty or something like that. But I think it's worth mentioning uh, because it's about time, you know, that that people like me um, are given these kinds of opportunities. So I'm I'm really thankful to be the first, um, but I hope, you know certainly not the last and that this is kind of an opening for many other voices, um, to be 
celebrated and encouraged and displayed, you know, in this way. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is a big deal, and I am so happy for you. It's Thank be you. Great. You're also in, in in good company. You're you, Omar Thomas, mm-hmm. and Frank Takelli. My goodness. So there you go. I know. I'm really excited to hear their pieces as well. It's going to be very different, yeah. like three completely different styles of writing, um, all celebrating the same occasion and uh, fully vaccinated now. So hopefully I will get to be there <laughs> and celebrate with all my friends and colleagues and everybody. So, yeah. So I don't have to like smuggle you across in my bag or anything like that. So <laughs> we'll be okay. You'll already be in the um, country. I don't know how you I, do I, that. I'll, I'll, I'll already be there. Um, yeah, because yeah, I, I I talked about this on our repertoire happy hour thing, but it's I hate to say how hard it is for me, but it is really hard for me because I'm friends with so many composers and they tell me about their pieces and I can't say anything about them. <laughs> so I I'm just so glad that this is out now and I can I can just live my life free <laughs> free <laughs> of the responsibility of your composer yeah. friend's secrets yes <laughs> you and you care hamill just like i've got so many secrets anyway but uh no it's a really i'm, I'm just kidding i'm saying all this uh, as a joke yeah super cool thing and Thank speaking you. of super cool things we had a great discussion today with someone that neither of us knew Mm-hmm. And that's one of the pleasures of doing this podcast. We were yeah. joined today by Kristen Reardon McClellan, who is uh, the Director of Education and Community Programs for the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, as well as Director of the University of British Columbia Concert Winds, where she conducts them and teaches sessional as well at the university, as well as just a lot of other things that she's doing for music education in BC when mm-hmm. it comes to advocacy, but how that we kind of talked about how that's trickled down across the country and and has helped us way over here in Ontario as well. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that we were able to uh, have this conversation with her because as you mentioned, this is someone that neither of us uh, had had the opportunity to speak with before. And this mm-hmm. podcast is just such a great way to connect with people. And I think you know, our conversation will sound as though it's very fluid and like we've been talking to each other for years. Um, but secrets out, listeners, sometimes, <laughs> secrets we've, out. sometimes we've never <laughs> spoken to the person before. So um, it was a real treat for us. And she offered such good reminders for uh, mm-hmm. educators, uh, particularly music educators, of course, um, and just thinking about why we do what we do and how we can kind of keep the momentum going forward. So it was a really inspiring conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. But we want more people, dang it, to hear this amazing conversation. How do we get more people to hear this, Kate? Well, one really, really great way for you listeners to help us make sure that this gets into the ears of the people who need to hear it is Mm -hmm. if you could do us a huge favor and head over to Apple Podcasts, if that's where you're listening, and leave the Bandroom Podcast a rating and a review. Uh, Make sure that you have liked or subscribed to the Bandroom Podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen to and share it with your friends, with your teachers your family members, your colleagues, anyone that you think needs to hear about this. It it really does help us out um, when you go out of your way to share this with other people. So thank you to everybody who has done that so far. And to those who have not, today's the day. Today is your day. It's your day. <laughs> We're calling you in. <laughs> uh, 
I'm calling, calling you in Avengers. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much as, as Kate said to all of you that have gone and done that. And thank you to all of you who have taken that extra step to become part of our Patreon community where you can have access to extra bonus content. And today is an example of that. We recorded as usual, a very fun bonus episode uh, with Kristen. This is, I think, the first time that we've spoken about gigs gone wrong. We've done that many times, but this is the first wardrobe gigs gone wrong. So Kristen shared a bit of a story. I shared uh, also a very unfortunate story that happened to me in, let's say, a rip. (laughs) (laughs) It was a story I had not heard yet, and I'm so glad that it is that it exists in recorded form now. (laughs) Yeah, there are. Oh, I have. Uh, I'll tell you more as, at a later date, but I have many, for some reason, many wardrobe <laughs> gone wrong stories uh, in my conducting career. But you can hear uh, about that if you want to hear about that. <laughs> if you become uh, a patron of the Bandroom Podcast through Patreon and you can check out how you can become a supporter and help us out a little bit uh, at patreon.com slash bandroompod. That's patreon.com slash Bandroom Pod, where you can learn about rips and tears, and I'm going to stop talking about this. So, <laughs> without further ado, here is our conversation with Kristen Vuden McClellan. Here we are for a new exciting bandroom podcast and today is very exciting because we are joined by someone from the opposite coast of where we are all the way from bc comes the director of education and community programs for the vancouver symphony as well as the director of the ubc concert wins Kristen reardon mcclellan welcome to the bandroom thank you dylan thanks kate i'm thrilled to be here and excited to chat with you guys today yeah, this is one of those one of those interviews. I won't call it an interview. This is one of those discussions, one of those conversations where I get to talk to someone I don't know at all. Because uh, I think when I was last in BC, I didn't see you around. So I'm so glad that we could have. Yeah, this likewise, time and it's great to, to meet you. you and and Kate finally officially for the first time. Although I yeah. feel like in performing your music, we have a we have a connection. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. Connection. And I, I guess we'll we'll start where we always start. Where, why, and how did you start your musical yeah, journey? So the older we get, the further away this seems, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it wasn't that long ago. Um, well, I grew up in um, in New York on Long Island, Comac, New York, and um, I come from a musical family. My mom was my flute and piano teacher from day one. Um, up until I went to college. And um, she she was a high school band director before she had my brother and I and then um, taught actively as a as a private teacher, but from home. And so it was it was a really, you know, it was so nice having her around. Uh, you know, we'd come home from school and then she'd eventually teach her lessons in the evening. And, you know, so we grew up in that environment. My dad uh, was a middle school and high school band director in public schools of Long Island uh, for his whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were really immersed in, in a musical family environment. And um, I started playing the piano in kindergarten and flute wow. in second grade and um you know I, I my my big crowning achievement at that age was that i was able to join the fifth grade band in the third oh, grade wow. i know i know and so <laughs> um and it was all downhill from no just kidding um <laughs> 
so so having so having you know my mom they're both such mentors my parents but my mom as a teacher and she was also my accompanist and you know we just we had um we had our moments as mm-hmm. i'm sure any parent child teaching relationship would but um but it was just it was just the best and um i think growing up in new york it's a it's a great place for music education. Um, mm-hmm. The you know the state the organization there NISMA and um, my participation over the years in those festivals and um, all county and, and bands and orchestras and yeah. um, one other huge. Uh, factor for me growing up there was I performed at the Nassau Suffolk Wind Symphony and that was a kind of an all Long Island band uh, mm-hmm. now it's a series of bands um, and jazz bands several of them in the organization but um, it brought together it was it was an every Saturday morning type youth band and um, Joel Levy was the conductor and it was just such an experience and you know high-end music making with kids from all over the area um we just had so many amazing opportunities and exposed to repertoire that we never would have seen in our high school bands and and so that was i think really formative for me um Mm -hmm. but even in my in my school in comac public schools it was um the music program was good. Um, right. My high school band director, Pete Brash, who was also heavily involved in the NISMA organization, and he was a wonderful mentor, um, got to be drum major of the high school marching band and um, cool. a really great childhood um experience in music. And then from there, um, I headed south six hours and did my undergrad at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there had two just fabulous mentors, Anthony Maiello and John Casagrande, um, and also my flute teacher, Judy Lapple. Um, and, you know, in Fairfax, it was it, it, just being so close to the DC area. It was, mm-hmm. um, it was a great place to go to school outside a big city like that with such a thriving music scene. Uh, so many of the U.S. military band musicians were on faculty, oh, um, wow. and it was a, uh, a really, really strong music ed program um, yeah. and the ability to teach the opportunity to student teach in Fairfax County Public Schools, which are, is a great district for music education, um, the amount of teachers we got to observe and programs that we got to see in action. So so that was mm-hmm. really I, I feel like I left George Mason with with such a really great background in um, in music education. Right. Also as a flutist, you know, I, I, I was really, I was majoring in music ed, but, but really wanted to focus on, on performance. And so I was Mm -hmm. able to do both and ultimately music ed won out, um, (laughs) for many reasons. Uh, Mm -hmm. but yeah, that's kind of the, the history. Yeah, that's great. And, um, so was, well, I guess having parents that are so involved in music and your dad being a music teacher, was that kind of what, what inspired you to go into music education? For sure. I, I, I think that was a big part of it. Um, maybe not music education, but music in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately when I, I think it was that combined with my own teaching experiences and, and training that ultimately led me to decide that music education was the right track within this profession for me. I right. keep thinking, you know, I could, I could have made it. I do think I could have made it as a flutist <laughs> if I had kept going. Um, yeah. But it wasn't, I think personality wise and where my passion really was, was in making a difference as a, as an educator. And so, right. um, yeah, I think all of those mentors along the way, um, mm-hmm. you just strive to want to be like them. Yeah. And growing up in New York, I can only imagine some of the amazing concerts you probably went to. 
yeah, our average high school band trip, you know, on a, was a <laughs> let's go to Broadway or let's go yeah. see the Metropolitan Opera or the New York Phil. And uh, uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was pretty good. We were about 45 minutes or so um, from New York City. And then, um, yeah. But although I, I must say that if, if anyone listeners are from Long Island, you might know going to the city is a big thing. You go like into the city. You have to yeah. right. get on a train or, or drive really far in the parking. And, and so it's not as... You don't just jump into the city as often as uh, as mm-hmm. you might in another yeah. city, but it's uh, yeah, <laughs> crossing those bridges. I don't know. It's like going to another <laughs> planet sometimes. Yeah, I'm already nervous just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, did you spend time teaching uh, in Virginia before you came to Canada? Because we know that you spent some time teaching in Manitoba, which we're excited to hear about. Um, but what was that journey like for you in, in your early teaching days? Yeah. Um, so no, I didn't officially teach in Virginia. I had applied for jobs. I had landed a job in Loudoun County public schools. Um, and that summer, um, before, you know, right after graduation, um, before deciding what was next, I had also applied for some jobs on Long Island. And so it was kind of in that decision mode of, okay, well, do I stay in Virginia? Do I go back home to New York? Um, except there was this guy, uh, his name was Peter (laughs) and he was a tuba player. He Uh was from Canada. Um, and he came to George Mason in, uh, in my third year. And so he's two years younger than I am. And, um, he came in my third year and I just remember thinking, Oh, he's kind of interesting. He's, he's Canadian. Huh? Um, <laughs> exotic, he, he, was, yeah. he had known Tony Maiello before, um, before coming through as many of us did from, you know, high school, all state mm-hmm. bands and, and so on and so forth. And, um, and so Tony, Tony booked him in as the official instrument repair room and instrument, you know, like where you check out instruments for your, for your um, techniques classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was in charge of that. And, and so he was a, f- a freshman in college and thought he had a, a whole lot of power um, <laughs> being the person in charge of all the instrument rentals. And uh, I remember, so this is just, an, it's, this, is, this is a how we met story. So yeah. <laughs> I needed, a, t- I needed a, um, a locker to store a tuba for, for brass techniques. And, um, you know, and, and he, knowing he, knowing I was a flutist, oh no, mm-hmm. you have to have one of the flute lockers on the second floor. I'm like, well, I'm scheduled for brass tech. Where am I supposed to store all these big instruments? <laughs> hmm, I don't know. I mean, you'll have to keep them in here, I guess. But, but as a flutist, I'm required to give you a locker on the second floor. Okay, then. And then the, you know, the older, the graduate student who was supervising him was like, dude, what is wrong with you? Give her the locker that she, she asked for. She's got four instruments here that she's trying to yeah. store. Um, Anyway, so so that it started out a little rocky, but um, but we we uh, we fell in love, and um, oh, Peter moved back to Winnipeg uh, after one year at Mason, which left me with one year still to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, he was Chris Lee was the new tuba player at that point in the Winnipeg Symphony, mm-hmm. and Peter really wanted to study with him. He was he was having a great oppor- or great experience at Mason, but um, was really called back because of Chris, and so um, he went he went there, and we did a year apart, and then I was like, well. I've got this opportunity to teach in Virginia, can go back home, or why not move to Winnipeg? And <laughs> so ultimately, I kind of followed my heart and, and went, and um, it was such an adventure. I spent the majority of that year figuring out how to get work permits and teacher certification, mm-hmm. and yeah. oh, what a what a hassle, but an adventure. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough that Manitoba uh, was was willing to hire 
someone from the U.S. and they were willing mm-hmm. to go through that process to get um, the paperwork and the, you know, the, the authorization that I needed. Um, and so my first teaching gig there was up in Gimli and Winnipeg Beach. So oh, okay. not only did I get to move to Canada and to Winnipeg, but I got to drive every day in my little Honda Civic all the way up to, or no, it was a Toyota Corolla actually at that time, <laughs> um, all the way up to, to Gimli and Winnipeg Beach every day, which is about an hour north of Winnipeg um, oh, wow. through the snow and the and the fog and everything else. And um, <laughs> But it was, it was amazing. It is so beautiful. And um, you know, Winnipeg Beach, I was the only music teacher in town. Gimli was a bit more mm-hmm. populated um, with a, a few of us there, but it was the Evergreen School Division. And I can't imagine a better place to have gotten my feet wet. And, um, you know, I, I guess I was this exotic, like, who is this person from New York randomly <laughs> coming up here and teaching music? It was a maternity leave position. Um, okay. So it was only for a year. And, and the teacher had returned after her leave or else I probably would have stayed. Um, Mm -hmm. But the second year then, um, I moved um, to the Louis Riel School Division, which is in Winnipeg, uh, much, much, much closer to where we were living, um, and taught at two schools, um, two middle schools. Uh, One was grade, well, elementary slash middle school, so they were grade K to six, and then um, the other school went up to, no, sorry, that's not right. The one school was K to eight, and the Mm -hmm. other one was K to nine so i was teaching um Jeez. you know grade six to eight or six to nine band in each yeah. of the schools two very different schools um yeah. where one was mandatory band one was not um one had a thriving music parent organization one did mm-hmm. not and these are just on the other side of the the district um and so there were some really great learning experiences even between those two schools yeah. um in fact, at one of the schools, Darren Olerking had been the the band director there just a, a few years before I was. And so, you know, you kind of get to know the names that um, right. of, of where, where everybody eventually ends up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think living in Winnipeg was amazing. It's a it's a small enough city where everybody in the music community knows each other. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a great music education community and even like the jazz scene and, and the symphony is the place to be and the place mm-hmm. to show up. And I feel like everybody was really closely connected there. And so um, it was a it was a really quick immersion that I felt that they just kind of adopted me into what they were doing there. Cool. Beautiful. Yeah, I was uh, whenever you mentioned like of all places for for someone to, you know, to, who came from the American band tradition and to end up in Manitoba, it's probably, probably closest and uh, really, really great band programs. And, and you mentioned uh, Darren's school, because I know uh, talking to Jason Kassler before he was at his first school, Tanya Miller was there. <laughs> it's like, there's all these crazy people coming out of Manitoba. I don't know what's <laughs> in the water there, but well and then that's interesting i've always kind of wondered that and what what is it like what caused the the explosion of great music education in manitoba like was it Mm. i don't know is it more of the church-based tradition there is it uh it's so cold in the winter and there's nothing to do so let's play (laughs) instruments um did it have anything to do and i'm not claiming at all that it's it's the americans that went up there but but there were um several teachers that moved up there, you know, from Minnesota, North Dakota in mm-hmm. the, in the seventies and, um, and established really great programs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious and I actually, I guess I never had time to ask that question and wh- why is it so <laughs> right. good here, but yeah, totally. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I was just going to say we had an interesting conversation with uh, Jackie Dawson about this very thing, you know, what makes band in Manitoba so special. And um, it was interesting just hearing her talk about the importance and significance maybe of community between the various levels of music making. So all the way from elementary, middle school, music educators up to high school, university and community music. And as you mentioned, the jazz scene and the orchestra and all of that, it just seems like there's a really cohesive uh, musical community, it seems. Um, So that's that's definitely part of it. But it, it would be interesting to look at, you know, the origins of all of that. For sure. And I, they also have the Manitoba Band Association, which is a powerhouse organization, um, yeah. unifying everybody, keeping everybody, yeah. you know, in touch and aware of what's going on. And I would even think it's, you know, and I haven't gone on their Ministry of Education website for a while to know the details of this anymore, but but um, they their policy, like their their provincial policy mandates music education in every school um, from K to 12. And so... Yeah. You know, compared to BC, where like I just I remember being there, knowing that in an elementary school, um, every kid would receive music for X number of minutes per week, taught by a music specialist, mm-hmm. and I mean that's how it was when I grew up as well. And and then when we come to BC, it's like, oh, this is this is a little different because that mandate is not in place. Right. Um, and I know it's similar with other provinces as well. And so if that that if we're missing that mandate, that policy. Um, I think that's also where things go off the track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you say that because I was thinking about in my own childhood, the school that I went to for elementary school had a music program, not a super strong music program, but there was a band, there was a choir, uh, but the elementary school down the road didn't have anything at all. Yep. And so just dependent on where families decided to send their their kids or, you know, what part of the neighborhood you lived in and, and which school you ended up going to, yep. some kids grew up with a really robust, you know, music education and, and some had absolutely nothing. So it's, yeah, interesting to consider the possibility of that mandate kind of playing a big role in this. For sure. And how we can get the ear I know I'm sure we'll talk about advocacy later, but um, how how we get the ear of the people that need to hear that um, exactly. in government. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. And that it's still like that. You know, it's, it's like that in BC where in many districts, what's happening in one elementary school is completely different than literally a stone's throw away. And exactly. yeah. that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> yes. Um, you uh, You had mentioned that you you moved to Manitoba because of love. So I, I can only imagine that that might be why you, what led you to work with the Vancouver symphony. Oh, do you want to know where else I moved for love? So, um, so it's the same, it's the same love. Um, so things went well, (laughs) things went well (laughs) when he listens to this, he's going to give me such a hard time. But, um, when, uh, things went well in Winnipeg, we had a a really great two years there and, um, Mm. and Peter finished school and, um, then it was like, okay, what next? Um, very, you know, he was very, at that point, set up for success, uh, in a professional tuba career. Mm-hmm. Um, I was happy as a teacher. So the next, ne- the logical next step was grad school. Um, mm-hmm. and so from, uh, from Winnipeg, we moved to Indiana. And so we did two years of our master's at Indiana, um, 
And that was life changing. Like that was, Mm -hmm. I I think, one of the most significant things that we possibly could have done that have shaped, that has shaped my um, vision and and views and um, goals moving forward. Um, So we were at another crossroads after the masters and, you know, Mm -hmm. Peter had come really close in many auditions and just was waiting for the right Mm -hmm. one to click. Um, And so we had the the same old conversation. Do we stay here in Bloomington and maybe I'll get a teaching job and you'll keep auditioning. Do we move somewhere else and and see what happens? Um, And the opportunity to start doctorates came up at Mm -hmm. IU and, you know, they were fully funded and um, so well supported and working with faculty like that. I don't think you turned down that kind of an opportunity. Um, and so we started and, and two years into our doctoral programs, um, the VSO job came up and mm-hmm. for Peter, um, and it was at that point a one year, um, cause the, his predecessor was going to go on a year leave, possible retirement, but un, undecided at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we knew it was a good situation. And so we, eagerly but at the same time reluctantly put those doctorates on hold right um and then life happens and you know you get settled somewhere and you're thinking oh my goodness i need to get back to this i need to finish this Mm -hmm. um but we haven't gotten there yet and so that's that's one thing that's a bit like i don't know i don't want to say it's a regret it's just (laughs) something that's still hanging out there is something that i would i would really like to do at uh, at one point so i just keep saying Mm -hmm. look i have the d not the r (laughs) (laughs) I passed my progress orals, which is like the, you know, the big, the big halfway there point. But, um, (laughs) yeah, so, so Indiana to, um, to Vancouver and we had gotten Mm -hmm. married the summer, um, right before we moved to Vancouver Mm -hmm. and, uh, the one year turned into a continuing contract for Peter and, um, yeah. And so my VSO job was again, a result of, uh, of following love. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, your colleague Rob Taylor also moved to BC for love. It's yes, something. that's right. And look at look at him. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and what he's built here, and um, it's that's kind of a hard place to uh, and a vulnerable place to be, where you feel like you're mm-hmm. constantly following someone yeah. else in a in a deg- in a in some regard. But but the reality of that, I think, is if you're going to choose to spend your life with an orchestral musician, you have to be a little bit flexible mm-hmm. um, to, to where the job is going to be, especially as a, as a tuba player where there's one of you in every yeah. orchestra. And um, I guess the lesson for me, and I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this um, and how, how my own work fits in. And I think if anything, what I've learned is, is that I can have faith in my ability to be adaptable um, and to be able to, build and immerse and to participate in the music community wherever we may end up. I mean, we have no, no intentions on leaving here. We're happy here. Um, But it's, it is a tough place to be where you have your own ambitions and your own desire to kind of do what you want, but you're at the same time, just wanting to be with this other person. So. Well, it's like, this is one thing that I didn't know that you and I would connect over because I, as I mentioned before, uh, we started recording. I was like, oh, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Rob if he can give me any, any points of interest I could dive to. He's like, oh, she's married to the principal to a VSO, and I was like, no way. So I'm also married to an orchestral musician uh, who's a harpist, and uh, we, you know, it, it hasn't come to the point yet where 
um, we've had to move for a job, but I, I know that feeling of, okay, well, even, uh, ended up auditioning for, for your Vancouver symphony and being in the finals. And I remember uh-huh. being on the phone being like, oh no, I'm, I'm moving to BC, <laughs> I'm moving to BC. <laughs> uh-huh. But that exact same thought that, that you had mentioned about what, what we do can really be done anywhere as, as long as we can, you know, kind of figure out a way to do it, which is, it's a really cool thing to think about. And, it uh, is. And yeah, and, and absolutely, you're right. And, and the, um, I guess, you know, if, if for those of us aiming for a full-time university teaching job, that's mm-hmm. in some ways similar to a, in, a, an orchestra job where you have to, you know, they're limited and you have to go to where the situation is right and yeah. to where you get the gig. Um, but it doesn't have to be only one, you know, there's not only one path, I think, to, mm-hmm. to make a difference and to, to be happy in a career. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I always, people, people, especially from New York say, Oh, you moved to, you moved to Canada. Oh, I know so-and-so in Toronto. It's like, come (laughs) on. Even way over there. Yeah. (laughs) Even when I was, was was living here, I was a little more aware of that. I mean, my, my first awareness of, of Vancouver was the 1994 Stanley cup playoffs when the Rangers Mm -hmm. beat the Canucks. Ha. (laughs) But, um, but that was kind of the first like, Oh, Vancouver, that's always a city in West coast of Canada. Anyway, but you know, no, of all places to end up, we could have done worse. You know, this Mm. is a, this is a great city. It's beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. and though expensive, um, (laughs) you know, and the orchestra is fabulous and in really good shape. And, um, yeah, yeah, all in all, if it ends well, then (laughs) we can be happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you be able to, uh, to tell us a little bit about your position? And I, I know you've been up to lots of exciting things. Well, exciting because we've been forced into this because of the pandemic, but I was wondering if you could kind of tell us some of the stuff you've been up to during the, the pandemic as well with the VSO. Yeah, yeah. Haven't we all been forced into creative thinking and yeah. out of our comfort zones? Um, so, so the VSO in a normal year um, would reach about fifty thousand people through education and community programs, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, typical orchestra community engagement where you're talking about elementary school concerts where the kids come downtown mm-hmm. and and see the concerts and um, family matinees on Sundays and um, open rehearsals and uh, our programs go um, as as far as a um, there's a VSO Connects program which takes our musicians and conductors into partner public school districts mm-hmm. uh, where we partner deeply with with one elementary school and one secondary school from each of these districts um, okay. for a two-year term and so they really get to be immersed in our world and us and theirs um, and so so we have it's a pretty robust um, education program at the VSO we have 14 different education programs happening and one wow. of those is as I was mentioning to both of you the um, the orchestral institute the VSO institute um, which is a, a summer training program Mm-hmm. that we actually expanded this year um, from because oh, of the pandemic. So anyway, right. you know, these the normal 14 programs, like, oh, okay, well, what are we supposed to do now? Nobody can come to concerts. And so mm-hmm. um, I've got to say, I, I feel I'm, I feel proud of the VSO as an organization for what they have been able to accomplish during the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, a whole lot of resilience that's been displayed and creative thinking Um we we started a uh, a virtual concert hall, digital concert hall called theconcerthall.ca, okay. um, and it's a subscription based model, kind of like a, a YouTube for orchestra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, not YouTube, a Netflix for orchestra. Um, 
And as part of that, so the musicians have been recording all season. Um, their their schedules were a little bit cut um, from a normal year, obviously with all the the challenges and the mm-hmm. inability to have an audience and um, all the budget risks that come along with that. But um, they recorded programs all year long and they were edited and um, posted on, on the concerthall.ca for subscribers yeah. to enjoy. Um, and one of the the ways that we got around the education issue um, and not, not being able to visit schools or not being able to have kids come to us uh, or families come to us is um, something called the music room, which is like a, a music education zone within the concerthall.ca. Um, and on there, we've been able to, to record our school concerts and our kids concerts. And we have a, an area there called the backstage pass where we've been doing exciting little things like interviews with musicians. And, Mm -hmm. um, we just hosted a, and recorded, they haven't been released yet, but a series of panel discussions, um, with our musicians, as well as some special guests on different topics like wellness. Um, one of them was a, uh, kind of a, compare and contrast a musician's mindset with an athlete's mindset and we had um an olympic skier cassie sharp um the reigning gold medalist of women's half pipe she came in um and also a a track and field uh, star from um way way back many years ago um named valerie jerome who lives here in um in vancouver and so you know finding finding this new platform um where we're able to still create content and distribute it and you know what we found is that it's able to reach so many more people and i think we wanted mm-hmm. we've always wanted to do um virtual learning but just never had the time or honestly like now we were forced to so <laughs> this was the opportunity to finally get into that and i don't think it's going to go away i think it's it's here to stay and we can reach kids that are and schools that are so much further away and would never be able to come to us anyway Mm -hmm. um so our numbers went from the fifty thousand contacts a year to we we think based on the number of subscriptions and how many school districts are involved um it went up ten thousand um so that's a good thing and yeah yeah we were able to generate some revenue from it um and thank goodness for all the government, you know, employment assistance and everything else that that um, companies and organizations were able to to access. And and now it's all about like how do we how do we go forward from here? I, it's almost mm-hmm. like next year is going to be the harder year um, mm-hmm. if all of that funding disappears. And so you you know, I, but thank goodness the the pandemic does seem to be under control enough that we think live audiences will come back and um and and things are looking positive but we're certainly budgeting for every possible mm-hmm. scenario yeah wow that's fascinating i well we'll make sure firstly to include uh, a link to all of that in our episode sure, yeah. notes so that people can check it out um that sounds like such a cool thing and such a cool opportunity to provide to people because as you mentioned you know actually physically showing up at the concert hall is not always as feasible as we would like to be for various communities so i think it's fantastic that you've found a way to present some of this stuff to kids and adults, you know, all over the place. And I'm especially fascinated by the comparison with the athletic mindset, because I think there's so much overlap between, you know, you're, if you're a performer, you're a performer, regardless of of what your act is, right? Um, So that's, that's really, really interesting. 
Yeah. And it was funny because at the end, Cassie, the skier was, you know, thinking, oh, these musicians are so amazing. And oh, I'm so <laughs> enamored by what you do. And she brought her gold medal. And so there are all, you know, the participating VSO musicians like, oh, can I hold your gold medal? This is just right. So it's that mutual admiration for, for, for the sure. for the thing that is not in your wheelhouse. That's like, wow, I, I'm impressed by this person. And yeah, um, yeah it was it was great. And, you know, another th great thing that came out of um, the pandemic was across Canada. So through um, Orchestras Canada does a good job at connecting um, education personnel from all of the orchestras coast to coast to coast. And um, we there's always this aspiration to collaborate and let's maybe we can just produce a school show together um, mm -hmm. that can be used everywhere and it would save so much time and money and resource and um, but again it never happened because everybody's just doing their thing right? Um, right and this year finally we're we're well on track to um, to release uh, something called the Great Canadian Orchestra Field Trip uh, come next year I think around October it's a, it's right. hopefully going to be a series of three or four shows um, but it's a it's a collaboration between orchestras across the country um, led by National Art Center Orchestra right. um, VSO and Toronto Symphony and so oh. and Montreal Symphony and so we're really excited to be uh, part of that project and kind of to see where that takes us going forward and so hopefully it'll be free for um, for kids across the country yeah wow, that's, that's amazing. amazing yeah <laughs> and uh <laughs> kate and i are in the same wavelength we're just amazed apparently but it's it, <laughs> as you mentioned just uh and i and i've been thinking about it a lot lately of um i hate saying it i say this every time it's recorded on the podcast but the whole silver lining of the pandemic it's true but it is true like it, all the stuff that you've developed that is going to have a life beyond the pandemic or if it comes with even with the podcast we were only doing you know an episode a month before but because of the pandemic we're like oh, i'll do every week and now that's a thing that's going to yeah. live on and yeah. uh and also the idea and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this later but how the pandemic has as educators has kind of forced us to look at what we're teaching and how we're teaching be it the whole kind of regurgitation method that we've been in yeah. and now we're kind of forced to do these more creative things that might involve yeah, improv or electronic music or composing you know so it, it's very interesting to see how the how the pandemic has built yeah. things I, uh. I think the silver lining <laughs> while cliche is definitely yeah. it's true um I, and i've said that to the ubc students this whole year is you have to try to find the positive in all of this and, and what has come out of this that you want to keep and what, what do you realize based on all the changes that we've had to make, what do you want to get rid of from how it used mm -hmm. to be? Um, and it's kind of a, a nice, I hope that we all really do take the opportunity to, to reflect on that rather than just by default, go back to our usual. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's all about finding, finding the silver lining and, and, and at UBC um, seeing what has come out of, uh, some of the projects that we did this year that never would have taken place had we not been forced into this situation. Yeah. And so the fact that there's still growth and there's learning and um, it's still managed to, to move upwards in a positive direction, it didn't just stagnate. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I know, I know you've all been enjoying the summer heat not worrying about lesson plans, score study, fixing that spit valve, or maybe even thinking about handing out reads. But let me remind you, September is right around the corner. 
No need to sound so negative, Dylan. There is so much to look forward to, like the York OBA Beginning Band Symposium. Of course, how could I forget? The Beginning Band Symposium provides an opportunity for professional development with experienced clinicians. Topics may include, but are not limited to, rehearsal techniques, repertoire ideas, introductory band class lessons, engagement, and program development. The Beginning Band Symposium also allows teachers to connect with colleagues from across the province. Not in Ontario? No problemo! The symposium will be delivered in a virtual format so that you can take part from the comfort of your own home. Mm -hmm. Hosted by the Ontario Band Association, Yamaha Canada Music, and York University, this event is happening on Saturday, October 2nd, 2021, with guest clinician, composer and conductor Vince Gassi. Get a head start on the school year by registering today. Learn more by visiting onband.ca. That's O-N-B-A-N-D dot C-A for more. Speaking of UBC, we would love to hear about uh, some highlights from your experience conducting the UBC concert wins. And particularly, uh, we want to hear about your project with past BRP guest Jody Blackshaw and her piece 13 Moons. Yeah, Jody. I love Jody. Um, we all love Jody. So, yes. <laughs> so um, UBC, UBC is is fantastic, and um, concert wins. Um, it's it's just the loveliest group of students and and, and humans that um, that are committed to being part of this group. And so it, it's typically on a typical year, it's about sixty percent music majors and forty percent non music majors. So for us it's, it's the second band quote unquote for, mm -hmm. um, for the music majors. Obviously Rob has his symphonic winds, um, as, as the top group, but, um, it's also our all campus band in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. but it's so much more than that. It is, I think the level at which they play is, is well beyond many all campus bands. Um, and, they it's so interesting to watch the interaction of the majors and the non-majors and really how much common ground they do have yeah. um right. and how it's it's i think it's refreshing for the majors to have really talented non-majors who play at the same level or sometimes even even better mm -hmm. than them um but you know just this person could have gone into music but instead they chose engineering and so but they mm -hmm. still want to be making making music and so um it's a it's a unique ensemble um all I wish is that I had more time with them. We rehearse yeah. twice a week and, um, you know, schedules are tight and I, it's, it is hard to juggle different roles between VSO and UBC. And, yeah. um, and I was really active with the coalition for music education in BC for the last several years. Mm -hmm. Um, and now family. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I just, I love teaching at UBC and always open for, for other opportunities that will come up there. But, um, you know, the, so many of those students are there just for the love of music. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, there's a, a commitment there, I think across all of the UBC ensembles, um, a real commitment to, to high quality, um, music making and even for those non-majors they're yeah. getting high quality but they're getting an accessible ensemble experience um we talked about rob um and i know he was a he was a previous guest and mm -hmm. i so much enjoyed his episode um but he is just he's fabulous to work with um he's a friend and a colleague and and a mentor also in so many ways and mm -hmm. um there's 
a great sense of collaboration among the ensemble directors, um, you know, Jonathan Gerard and, and Graham Longager, um, Jonathan being the orchestra director, Graham choirs, um, you know, Jonathan and his wife, Catherine are, are two of our very best friends and, um, and they all do such great work and mm -hmm. there's a whole, it's, it's great because there's a huge expectation, but there's also a lot of creative freedom and, um, it's a motivating place to be. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've said with, with concert wins, it's such a contrast. It, it's what I do. It's what I'm trained to do, you know, but it's also such a nice contrast from my day job, um, yeah. where you can just really be in this state of flow and, um, finding, you know, be, being con completely concentrating and immersed in what's happening rather than thinking about, uh, everything else for those couple of hours of rehearsals. And the other great thing is, you know, yes, there's a great sense of collaboration within the UBC ensemble community, but also within the greater music community. So trying to find overlaps on like, how does, how does my work at UBC tie into my work at the VSO and how can we um, make both organizations stronger and how can students benefit from all of this? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of those UBC students have ended up being our post-secondary guest teachers in the VSO Connects program. Um, I can help to facilitate um, access to the VSO as a resource for them. Um, there's a great opportunity for mentorship and internships and, and all of that. And so um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, a win-win for, for everyone involved. And, uh, for a long time, UBC has collaborated with us on the, on the summer Institute, um, that I was telling you about. And yeah, yeah it's a really, it's a fabulous opportunity. And it's also, um, the, my priority is always trying to see this as what is the broader purpose in the community, uh, whether that's collaborating with other teachers and co-productions with concert wins or community groups or, um, you know, the UBC Summer Music Institute, for example, which was our mm -hmm. um, summer band and music camp um, for many, many years on break now. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a fabulous place to be. Um, regarding Jody, so, so 13 Moons West, um, that piece was born at UBC. Um, she was, well, Jody has been a, a composer in residence for us. Um, she's also been at our summer, um, conducting symposium mm -hmm. and out of the conducting symposium, it was a year, I mean, it's always fabulous teachers that participate in this, but this particular year, um, led by Janet Wade, who's a teacher um, mm -hmm. out here in the Fraser Valley and in the Abbotsford School District, um, they wanted to form a consortium and, and commission Jody uh, to write a new piece tied to Indigenous learning, um, Indigenous ways of knowing. Um, and so 13 Moons was the result of that. And I mean, it's a remarkable work. And they had, they had started, so I think they premiered a couple of the movements at, at um, one of the Summer Music Institutes a few years ago. Um, but one of them that we hadn't done yet was West, and that's the, the fourth movement. Um, and so we decided to do it this year. Um, concert wins, so we, we started out virtually for the first several weeks and then around Canadian Thanksgiving is when we transitioned mm -hmm. to in-person. Then the COVID cases got bad right mm -hmm. before the holidays. And so um, we ended a little bit sooner than we wanted to, but we actually managed to get through a whole second term um, mm -hmm. of in-person rehearsals, thank goodness. And, you know, BC was 
in relatively good shape. Um, we had some some really clear guidelines um, specifically for music teachers that the coalition had produced um, and the government got on board with, so a- allowing in-person music making. Um, anyway, so we started work on 13 Moons. It, it really was threaded throughout the year, but focused on the um, the second term. And of course, it's a composing piece. And so it invites ensemble members to um, in- interpret, organize, improvise, communicate this raw material that Jody provides as part of the piece um, and really turn it into your own version of a composition. And yeah. so it's inspired by indigenous moon stories. And it's just a beautiful story about the 13 segments of a turtle's shell and how each of them represents a different moon, a phase of the moon um, and what that means to different nations. Um, Mm -hmm. And so really as a, as a whole, it celebrates the wonder of nature and changing seasons and um, the interconnectivity of, of all things in in our world and our universe. And so the students, and I'm thinking like, you know, it's hard getting out and as Jody says, getting off the podium, right. And getting yeah. out of our box of, yeah. I know how to teach the whole suite, but Oh, you know, they have to <laughs> what improvise. Um, so it, it, it takes courage to do that. I think as a director, but mm-hmm. also for the students to buy in and to, to experiment and to try things. Um, but they went so far with this, it became to almost to the point of ridiculous. And if they had to be reined <laughs> in, down, um, I know it's like, guys, <laughs> um, be less but, creative. <laughs> yeah. This is way too much creativity. Um, but they, so they decided to curate this version of 13 moons West. And of course they had to have 13 movements. And so we're trying to plan all of this virtually at first before we got into in-person rehearsals mm-hmm. and map out what, the flow of these, and you know, they're so short, like they just kind of segments, they go on one to the next, but, Mm -hmm. um, the whole thing ended up being about 21 or 22 minutes, I think. Um, and their, their project was that they were going to try to represent the evolution of nothingness in the environment. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, back maybe at the time of, you know, evolution, the time of the beginning of the universe, there was nothing except the atmosphere. And then we have the addition of nature and animals and then human beings. And they had to add to that machines because mm-hmm. machines are really what, you know, once we hit that point that things yeah. started to get out of sync um, yeah. in our nature driven universe. And so um, almost with the message that humankind has become its own worst enemy and, uh, and the environment's worst enemy. And so the piece, they build it up to the screeching halt Um wipe the slate clean and then start to rebuild and learn to exist together in harmony. Um, and so that was their, that was their theme um, that they were trying to portray. And, you know, they really did the, these zoom meetings, they had these initial plans and they were writing poetry and they were, um, well, we need to have a motif for the machines. And so somebody wrote one and, you know, Jody had already asked us to write a, I think it was for, was it for humans that, um, that she wanted to, it's like a student composer. And so they just jumped right on mm-hmm. um, and took this on. And we ended up doing a um, an interview with several of the students that I think it's still on up on Vimeo yep. on the on the spring showcase um, from, from the UBC spring showcase concert. Um, and they, they just speak with such um, conviction and, and ownership over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was a big, 
uh, I think a big thing. And that was a, a, a area of growth that I not sure would have happened, uh, in a normal year where you're just kind of like pumping through the music and, right. you know, and, and so I yeah. think it causes us also to step back and say, we need to do more of this. And, um, we're always questioning, like you said, are we, are we relevant? Are we being modern enough? Are we teaching improvisation? Are we dealing with the whole student social emotional learning? Right. Mm -hmm. So how do we, yes, we can do that. Band is just our medium. Um, and it's figuring out how, how we can really make an impact. And, and a piece like this is just a gold mine of, of <laughs> yeah. creative opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's such a powerful story that the students wove together using Jody's piece as a platform to really make it their own. And I am thinking about how so much of music is performance oriented and so much of historically what has happened in music rooms um, is performance oriented. And I think it's so wonderful that, I mean, talk about silver linings. I think this pandemic has forced everybody to think a little bit differently about what can we do with music? What can we do with the arts uh, that is not just about performing on stage, but you know, telling a story, sharing a narrative, connecting music to personal aspects of our lives and society and things like that. So it's it's really encouraging to hear that you were able to accomplish that with the group. Yeah, and I think in, in the band community in general, there's been so much positive you know, positive motion in that direction. Look at like the creative repertoire initiative, for example, yeah. that mm -hmm. came out of the pandemic and all of the, the music there and the composers featured there that, um, that do have potential that teachers just have to open their eyes and know that this stuff exists. And I think another example is Alex Shapiro's putting the Ian ensemble. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we had also this year at UBC, a remote ensemble, because if students, they had the choice whether or not they felt comfortable yeah. and able yeah. to attend in person. Um, and for those who didn't, they were part of the remote ensemble, which I said, oh, sure, I'll, you know, I'll take that one on. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of work. No, it wasn't. It, it, it was it was very interesting. And yeah. um, it was it ended up being some really great projects. And we did putting the Ian ensemble and Alex visited a number of times and um, just seeing it, it all about the process rather than the product. Like it, we, if, even yeah. if your sonic quilt at the end of this is not, <laughs> you know, something that you want to send for publication, um, that's OK. Yeah. It's just let's go through the process and mm -hmm. learn how we can be creative with music yeah, yeah. amazing yeah i think she, i think she was on around that time and she was talking about the the piece and <laughs> i remember we made some jokes about my water bottle that's what i remember <laughs> and maybe it being <laughs> used can be music anything, anything. Yeah. 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 yeah yeah we're doing it now with our vso institute actually with one of the, oh, great. um great. one of the groups and and yeah they seem to be enjoying it and coming up with interesting things and yeah. And why not, right? It's just a, it's a complete change of pace from what the the regurgitation method, like you said, Dylan, and and yeah. you know just how we're so we're, we're so in that box of how we need to be teaching. Yeah, and I before I go to the next question, I I, I also just need to say how um, I, I mentioned this to Rob, but how in, inspiring it is to see all the things that that y'all are doing at UBC and uh, be it just like not programming a concert and put like holes there and then we're going to put something else, but like really, uh, really thinking about the why to why we're doing this music and how we're going to do it, how it's going to be presented, the program notes even. So we're going to really make sure to link, especially the 13 moons, um, 
performance, but also just the, to the Vimeo account in general is uh, a giant bank of excellent music making and creativity for, for all to kind of check out. Yeah. What did Rob say? He was, he was visiting family in, in the States and had gotten his second vaccine while he was there. And, uh, someone in, so the, I guess it was a, was it maybe an, an EMT or, um, a nurse or something in the, in the okay. clinic, um, recognized him and said, you're Rob Taylor. Or maybe it was like a, a <laughs> army reserve. I don't know. Somebody who was a musician, but helping out at the vaccine mm. clinic. Um, I'm a high school band director. Oh, I know you. You're from UBC. I've heard that Meslanka recording. And I'm, of All course, right. in the middle of Idaho, you know, at yeah. the vaccine clinic. No way. <laughs> but um, it's, I think it's all about the people who are, who are there and the, and the faculty is just, um, it's, it's, it's very well interconnected both professionally and also socially, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that everybody's friends and, and sees things in a very similar way. And, and I feel so lucky, even in my relatively small capacity, not being full-time faculty there, um, to work with them and to, um, to, to be always inspired and challenged in that way that I think a lot of us crave to be, mm-hmm you know, kind of held accountable and held to, to really high standards and it makes you want to deliver. Absolutely. It's all good stuff. And speaking of good stuff, and you've kind of talked about, um, we were talking about advocacy a little bit, but, uh, and, and the silver lining. And I must say that part of the silver lining in Canada is in part because of your work and Janet Wade's work, um, with, with the BC, M E A and, and all the, all the things you were doing to um, kind of help us figure out how the heck we're going to try to do music in the fall. So we were wondering uh, if you could talk about your work with, with the BCMEA as well as the coalition of music education, you know, what are some of the challenges facing music education, maybe in BC right now and, and how community working, uh, sorry, and how is the community working to overcome them? Yeah. So the, um, the project with Janet and the BCMEA. So that was the, the we, we had created a set of guidelines um, mm-hmm. for how to make music safely uh, during the pandemic. And that was another one of those projects like where the pandemic started and we're like, okay, new projects, what can we do? <laughs> Let's collaborate. Let's do cool things. And yeah. really we're like, uh, we just need to figure out a way for these teachers to be able to have their music programs running um, mm-hmm. because BC is not in a place that can afford to, um, take a break or or to see music eliminated or reduced right. in any capacity um, because it is I feel like it's so fragile here um, so so we we worked with um, a committee through the BC Music Educators Association and the Coalition for Music Education in BC um, and Janet was able to serve through the BCMEA on a health and safety committee that involved public health officials and government officials. Um, And so between their advice combined with the research that we all know about, you know, that has come out um, within the music world uh, about safety during the pandemic and and, and put together a a document that outlines how to do it. And it's a living document because things are constantly changing, you know, the more we learn about, is it really, if you drop the spit on the floor or is it the aerosols or, or, you know, what if I, what if I breathe on someone? But, um, and, and so it, it, and luckily, and I, I'm, I'm, unless I'm mistaken, like we haven't really heard of any COVID transmission that has come directly from music making. I mean, have you? No, I don't. 
think so. Other than in Washington State, the choral, the quiet church yeah. choir or whatever that was. <laughs> oh, that, it's like, that well, the yeah, rounds. they were also hanging out and eating and probably breathing all <laughs> right. over one another. Yeah. But it's it's exactly. not directly from yeah. um, from playing an instrument in the same room as someone. But anyway, um, that so that, yes, that got adopted and approved by the BCCDC and the Ministry of Education. And, and so I think it gave school districts the ability to feel comfortable and confident mm-hmm. that um, music programs could consider or could continue. Mm-hmm. It didn't work in every district. Some were, it was just simply too hard for them to be able to meet these recommendations yeah. <laughs> um, for one reason or another. But um, <laughs> I think, so just a bit of background about the coalition. So the BCMEA is your typical uh, provincial or state, you know, music educators organization. The coalition here is a unifying voice for all stakeholders, not just teachers. So parents, community members, um, industry, nonprofit, everybody who has a, a um, some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very much an advocacy organization. The teachers union in BC is, um, especially in some districts, are, is extremely strong um, where teachers cannot necessarily speak their minds freely and openly and they cannot advocate for their program over another. And so um, mm-hmm. part of the the CMEBC's interface with the BCMEA is to be able to be that voice um, because the CMEBC is not a, just a teacher organization. And so in a lot of ways, right. We can say what we need to say. Um, (laughs) And so over the years, um, we've developed a vision document for, you know, what we want music education in BC to look like. Um, We've worked with a lobbyist and developed a pretty decent relationship with the provincial government. Um, Mm -hmm. We work with the Music Monday celebrations every year, liaising with the National Coalition. Um, but the real question at the end of the day is like, is any of this working? And it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that even during our careers or lifetimes that we're going to see really the outcomes of all of this, yeah. right. but it's hard to convince decision makers that, because I mean, in BC, not to be a downer, but the, a lot of the system is so broken um, in, in how they fund and what their policies are um, that it really is going to take a huge effort to, in a sense, wipe the slate clean and rebuild. Um, Mm -hmm. The curriculum here also lumps music into fine arts. And so whether you're teaching music or dance or, or, you know, visual art, you're still covering the curriculum. And so, so that's a huge issue. And that's, that's a fairly new curriculum. In many ways, it's a beautiful curriculum, but, but when it, when it just come, you know, dumps everything into that fine arts category, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a huge problem. And so I think, here, the big challenges are the lack of policy um, and the lack of funding um, for music education coming from the government. It's the age-old issue of, oh, yes, and now extracurricular activities can start again in the schools. We are not extracurricular, right? Yeah. We are not – We are not, and, and I don't think people say that truly meaning mm-hmm. in curricular terms. I think they're – it's just like it's a fun activity. It's not. It's not math or science or yeah. or any of the other core subjects, mm-hmm. which we all know it is. Um, yeah. And then I think there's the issue of staying relevant, right? We we are always um, trying to defend, no matter where you go. Advocacy is always coming down to trying to defend the value of what we're doing. And like, why are we still having that conversation? Yeah. And I don't. I don't have the answers. Um, Me either. Oh, it's so frustrating. And and so also what we found here is that it's defending the value of large ensembles in music, right? And, right. and and I just cannot see why it has to be either or. 
or out with the yeah. old and in with the new, right? A large ensemble is just the setting by through which we're teaching content. And, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, we've seen so many great examples of how that can work in, in innovative and modern and um, really creative ways. And so I think the more teachers that we can get thinking that way and teaching that way, um, the better it's going to be. But to answer the question about how, like, how is the community working to overcome um, the challenges? I don't know if if you guys have heard, but the there was a major advocacy effort in the Victoria Public Schools over the last couple of months, um, okay. where they tried to just completely remove their middle school music programs. And oh, I've dear. never seen a community come together like they did in the <laughs> yeah. parent committees. And it was just it was incredible. Um, and even that didn't change the mind of some of these board members. And so. Yeah. Yeah. I think the ultimate message is just like helping people understand how important their vote is, not just for high level politicians, but school board trustees, right? And mm-hmm. and people who are really on the ground making the decisions. Um, but, you know, we're, we're fortunate in Canada that we have the Canadian, the, the Coalition for Music Education in Canada. Um, and I've, I've actually just taken on a board position with them in hopes nice. that one of my, one of my mandates or, or, or requests are, can we, can you help us make these types of provincial organizations across Canada? And, yeah. and I certainly hope I can. And, um, you know, working with the other people, we have an advocacy committee um, at the mm-hmm. coalition, and so hopefully that's something that we can start to build. And um, in many ways, in the U.S., like NAFME is such an inspiration with the size yeah. of that organization and what they're <laughs> yeah. able to accomplish. And yeah, so it's a—I don't know—it it feels like you can devote your entire life to advocacy and just hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, uh, I do need to because I know we just met but I feel like you're a very humble person, which is probably for the, for the best. But I, I need to say that your and Janet work from the, the BCMEA as well as the, the National Organized Music Education. You were awarded the Builders Award for all of your, all of your work during this crazy pandemic. And it's been really um, helpful for us that even in aren't in BC, you know, all of that stuff that you were putting together made its way over to Ontario. And I remember like going through it and like, Oh, this is so helpful for me to figure out how I'm going to do things at Cambrian with my band or whatever it is. So immensely grateful. And for all the work that, that you and Janet have been doing, especially this, this past year uh, to help us all through, through this madness. <laughs> thanks. Thanks Dylan. And that's, that's really nice to hear. And yeah, I, I like to consider myself humble and, I hate <laughs> self-promoters. I just can't take self-promoters. Um, uh, you know, it's like, we're all just, we're all worst. just trying to do our best. Let's <laughs> do it together and, and be nice yeah. to each other. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that, that, um, that it has been helpful. And, and mm-hmm. that's what we've heard from, from, you know, many teachers having people say, you are the, you, you guys are the reason it's like, well, no, it's our organizations and all the people that, um, that we work with. Um the reason why our um, music programs are able to continue this year. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that was a total labor of love. And I think, you know, I have to give Janet much more credit on it than, (laughs) than, than me um, because she was really the, um, she was the lead researcher, let's put it that way um, Mm -hmm. in this case. And it was such a, um, a surprise to be awarded that builder's award and and a, a real honor. Well, it's well-deserved for sure. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, 
So we've sadly reached the last question of this main episode anyway, but I will remind (laughs) our listeners that the three of us are going to go on to record a short bonus episode for our Patreon community. So if you would like to hear that episode and many other amazing bonus episodes, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash bandroompod. So for our last formal question, and I I just have to say thank you so much, Kristen, for all that you have shared and for all the work that you're doing uh, in BC, and it's obviously affecting all of music education in Canada and abroad as well. Um, So we really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and you've given us so many words of wisdom already, but we're wondering if you could give one piece of advice to conductors, educators, or just musicians in general, what would it be? Well, first of all, thank you to both of you, Dylan and Kate. Um, It's just, it's an honor to be asked and to be part of this fabulous podcast. And and I just love how much of a splash that the Bandroom podcast has made in the, um, in the, in our community. And so um, it's, it's amazing to be here and to have had these conversations with you. Um, Boy, so I was thinking about this question because, and I appreciate you sent it ahead of time. It's like, I don't know, this was off the cuff. Um, so, I mean, I came up with a few things. And so I think the biggest thing for me is to know your purpose and and to never forget it. So it's mm-hmm. very, very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day um, and to just be, you know, going through the motions, doing the same old, same old, but knowing why we do this, why we love what we do and we have to teach our students that way as well. They also have to see the big picture. The big picture is not prepping whatever grade three band piece for the next concert. That's just <laughs> part of the journey, right? It, it's why are we trying to, why are we, why are we learning music? Why do we love music? And um, how can we make you lifelong uh, either participants or uh, consumers of, or part, you know, just how can you keep mm-hmm. music as part of your life? going forward. You don't have to be a music major. What is next for you and how can, how can music stay as part of your world? Um, and ultimately I think the big why is, is it's a shared idea of, of why do we make music together? And it's the biggest answer to the, the, the most, you know, high level answer to that question, I think is we want to create beauty and we want to connect with one another and what better way to do that through, than through a, a music ensemble and, mm-hmm. you know, in, in my humble opinion, a band, <laughs> um, don't tell the VSR, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, but I also, so, um, I came across and I'm, I'm not remembering what book this was in and I should really have a, a, a reference for it, but, um, it, it was a quote that goes something like as, as music educators, we're responsible for shaping musical culture, not just reflecting it. And hmm. I think that often, teachers don't realize the power of our work. We are in many ways the translator and the the person um, teaching these students and, and shaping their understanding of music. And so it is our responsibility to be part of shaping that. It's not just reflecting only what we see others doing or uh, what's popular or um, making sure that we teach pop culture while all of that is important in the grand scheme of, you know, developing a comprehensive musician, we are responsible for making those decisions um, and helping them develop their musical tastes and, and understanding why music is so powerful. Um, So I would say it's to, 
to really understand our role in, in, you know, I, I always reference Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and, and it is, a, it's a huge responsibility um, that we have to our students. Um, and I think the last thing that would kind of summarize my, my overall, you know, approach to, to teaching and to my work is um, actually a Helen Keller quote, one can never consent to creep when one feels an impulse to soar. And if you've got that desire in you, you know, teaching is, a. I think teaching is a vocation. It's not just a, a career. It's not just a, a job. Um, it's our life's work. And I think a lot of times we have trouble separating our music from our life and our work from our life. And that isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. I think that's a gift in yeah. many ways that mm -hmm. what we're doing really makes enough of a difference. And it means enough to us that, it doesn't have to be, I work nine to five and I, I life the rest of the time. It's, it's, it's integrated. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, I, and I, I think it's certainly hard finding a balance between everything that all the things that are requiring our attention. Um, but we are lucky to do this job and, um, and we have a, a huge responsibility to our students. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice uh, to leave us on. It's also very empowering advice to re yeah. to remind us of as well. Uh, and you know, because I think as you kind of mentioned, sometimes we get a little <laughs> get a little beat up not remembering our why and all that stuff. So, uh, thank yeah. you so much for that reminder, <laughs> and and thank you once again for for taking the time uh, during a very busy day for you during the uh, institute to come speak with us. It's been such a, a really great time to connect with you and, and to learn more about you. And uh, I just can't wait now until the next time that we can meet. All three of us in person. I oh know. my gosh. Midwest 2020. <laughs> yeah, Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks so much, Kristen. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Kate. It's an honor. And loving, loving your work on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast, give us a rating and a review, and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider becoming part of our Patreon community, where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet, sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, where your comment might be featured on a future episode of BRP. The Bandroom Podcast is produced by the wonderful Jonathan Wong. And our theme music is Skyline, composed by EKR Hamill and performed by Dr. Gillian McKay and the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. <laughs>